Objectivism is a complex philosophy that requires a lot of studying and thinking to fully grasp its meaning. And many students of objectivism, old and new, have a lot of questions about the philosophy. So here in this podcast, we often host Q&A episodes to help clear, our, clear up some of the confusions that our audience may have, objectivist or otherwise. So welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. And today we will do in a Q&A episode on objectivism uh, with topics ranging from metaphysics to ethics. I'm Agustina Vergara-Sid, a junior fellow at, at the Ayn Rand Institute. And with me are Ben Bayer, fellow at ARI, and Dan Schwartz, visiting fellow at ARI. And we're welcoming him for the first time as a presenter. And Ben and Dan are here uh, to answer your questions that you submitted about objectivism. So welcome, Ben and Dan. Thanks, Augustine. Welcome, Dan. All right, so let's get started here. We have a question from a viewer and or listener. Um, this question comes from Roy. His question is: If objectivity is a certain uh, is a certain relationship between consciousness and existence, how can we really be object? Sorry, how can reality be objective? And he gives a little bit of context, and I quote what he wrote to us. He says. I was having a discussion with another objectivist and we are both beginners in objectivism. I was talking about how reality is objective and he stopped me by saying that I can't say that reality is objective. Then he shows me the definition of objectivity in the Anra lexicon about how objectivity is about the relationship between consciousness and existence. To sum it up, he says, objectivity is about the relationship. So you cannot say that reality is objective. And he asked, am I really wrong about the statement that reality is objective? So first I wanna start by saying this is a good question and it's a question on an important issue. Uh, it's, a, it's a question on a key concept if you wanna understand something about objectivism. After all, objectivism is named after uh, the concept of objectivity. And one of the most important well, let's say the probably the most important principle of objectivism is one of its metaphysical principle, principles, the idea of the primacy of existence. This is the idea that the world is out there independent of your consciousness, that you can't just wish it into existence. You can't just make things true by wanting them to be true. So it's opposing what they call the primacy of consciousness. And sometimes when people want to maintain that kind of idea, the way they describe it is by saying reality is objective. It's not just a construction of your subjective fantasy. So it would be a, it would be a problem for objectivism if, according to its own definition uh, of objectivity, that that its its basic principle didn't turn out to be true. Well, as it turns out, this is not this is not a problem because it's it's simply a case of the same word objectivity being used in two different ways. And the person, uh, Roy, who asked this question when his friend pointed to Ayn Rand's view about what objectivity is, how it's a certain relationship between a relationship between consciousness and existence. Uh, your friend is right about that. That is a definition that she gives when she is using object, the word objectivity to describe a certain method uh, of cognition. And that, as it turns out, is what objectivism is named after. It's, it's 
And so the relationship between consciousness and existence here is you are taking your mind and trying to put it in contact with reality. It's what someone is doing when we describe their reporting as, let's say, objective journalism, or what a teacher is doing when we say they're grading objectively, or what a judge is doing when they're engaging in objective jurisprudence. And the thing to understand about the products that journalists, teachers, and judges produce here is that, I mean, their articles, their grades, their verdicts, these are clearly not mind-independent things. They wouldn't be there if there weren't a mind producing uh, articles, grades, and verdicts. But to say that they're objective in this, in this other sense is just to say that they're produced by a method that reflects reality. And the reason that this is central to objectivism is not because uh, it's especially concerned with uh, journalism grades or jurisprudence, but that there are central philosophic concepts that relate to all of those uh, and more, which where the same basic kind of mode of cognition is in place. So uh, objectivism has, theory, has theories of concepts, it has theories of values, of laws, of art, uh, central philosophic products or, or uh, concepts that are, are products of objective thinkers. And objectivism says you can form either of these things objectively or subjectively. Uh, you should form them objectively. You should relate your consciousness to reality by means of following a certain method aimed at the facts using logic and so that means that there can be good concepts, there can be bad concepts, there can be rational values, irrational values, there can be objective laws and non-objective laws, objective art and non-objective art. And you have a choice and objectivism says, uh, create these products in using the method of objectivity. So uh, objectivism is called objectivism because it upholds this method uh, in its theory of all of these different products and in the way that we think about the world in general. To the, so to the extent that the question is about a linguistic issue of how an objectivism we use this concept of objectivity, um, one source that is, I think, clarifying on that that you could look at is uh, Leonard Peikoff's Objectivism the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. I think we can share that with you. Uh, so Dr. Peikoff says, thus we reach Ayn Rand's view of objectivity, which is a derivative of her theory of concepts. Here, in my words, is her definition. To be objective in one's conceptual activities is volitionally to adhere to reality by following certain rules of method. So that's the sense Ben was focusing on. But Dr. Peef goes on, there's this other sense, which he's not confusing with it. People often speak of objective reality. In this usage, which is harmless, objective means independent of consciousness. The actual purpose of the concept, however, is to be found not in metaphysics, but in epistemology. Strictly speaking, existence are not objective, they simply are. It is minds and specifically conceptual processes that are objective or non-objective. So you certainly could talk about objective reality, but it's not as essential a concept you could do without it because you could just say things exist and you wouldn't necessarily need the word objective there. Um, I also thought, um, my, my suggestion 
for the questioner is to think a bit more about the importance of the question. And this applies generally to questions you might ask about objectivism or issues you're facing. What, ask yourself, what difference could the answer make? Is this just, is the only difference it would make a matter of how you're going to use the word or whether you define it in some different way? Um, if so, it's maybe a more minor issue and you, know, you can use words in different ways as long as you're clear about how you're defining it. Um, so I took it, I think, as a linguistic question, but if there was more to it than that, um, that's one reason it would help to identify the importance of the question in your mind. Yeah, if you'd like to learn more about this issue, one place I definitely recommend looking is to the Ayn Rand lexicon as well. Uh, this is a, a free resource that's up on our website. Uh, there are entries on key objectivist concepts. There's one on objectivity. And you can see the passages from Ayn Rand where she lays out uh, what she means by objectivity in that, uh, in that sense of a method of applying your consciousness to reality. There's also some passages from Dr. Peikoff, uh, one in particular taken from a course that he gave that Ayn Rand attended, where he says basically the same thing as he said in that quote that we read previously. So it's, it's good to know this is not just his uh, interpretation, this is something that she endorsed as well. Also interesting to point out, just as a kind of footnote, historically speaking, that um, the, the confusion that comes up about this sometimes uh, is, uh, there's some sometimes it's there's an allegation that uh, this epistemological sense of objectivity, the sense of as a method of consciousness, uh, the accusation is sometimes made. Well, uh, objectivism is making up a sense of this word that it's this isn't what anybody means by objectivity. They just mean mind independence. Well, I already gave the examples of objective journalism, objective jurisprudence, objective grading. People use objective that way all the time, and that certainly doesn't mean mind independent, but also, if you if you look at the uh, the history in uh, of the, how this term is used in philosophy, it's interesting to note that the idea of objectivity as being mind independent is a relatively recent usage, dating really only to uh, the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. That uh, anyone who's read Descartes' uh, Meditations remember he gives a strange argument for the existence of God, where he talks about the difference between the objective reality and the formal reality of ideas. And the objective reality of an idea is a property that's supposed to uh, apply to it independent of reality. Uh, it's like the, the, the things that the idea is saying, whether or not what it's saying is true. And so there he's using objective in, in, in the completely opposite sense of, of mind independent. And over time, that term in philosophy came to mean a certain quality of representations in relation to reality and only really later did it come to mean uh, mind independence. So there's nothing very idiosyncratic about objectivism's usage here unless you take as your standard only very recent usage by philosophy. And uh, I wrote a blog post on this once uh, some years ago for the, the blog of the Ayn Rand Society. Uh, and if you go uh, to uh, that blog, checkyourpremises.org, you'll, you'll, you'll find that uh, the history of objectivity in light of Rand's epistemology and ethics, bit.ly slash history of objectivity. I have a, a follow-up question um, about something you said, Ben, earlier regarding objectivity as a method. So is it possible to be objective in one's method 
and still reach a wrong or a false conclusion? And if the answer is yes, then how is this possible? Because how can one be objective in one's method, but read a conclusion that is not aligned with reality? So the answer is yes. And I think we all have experience of this, of, for example, proofreading an essay, and maybe the word A is kind of at the end of one page and also at the start of the next page, and you proofread it several times and you just miss this. You have someone else proofread it and they just miss it. That happens in math too, with even basic counting or arithmetic. Um, we are not infallible. Human beings make mistakes no matter uh, how much we're being objective and how much effort we put in, uh, we're not omniscient or infallible. So now what I can say is typically, if you make a major mistake, despite being objective and putting in your best effort, that mistake will lead to some kind of evidence that something has gone wrong. People who read your work, if it's you know out there and it made a big difference that you had an error, will pick up on that and Unless you're being non-objective, unless you're kind of blinding yourself to the evidence that's out there and coming in that something has gone wrong, you will, uh, people will, over the long term, tend to pick up on major mistakes, perhaps not minor mistakes that just don't lead to a lot of evidence that something has gone wrong. And that is one of the reasons why the concept of objectivity as defined, as we've been defining it, is so important. We really need a concept for a method that you can follow, regardless of whether it in any particular case leads to the truth, because we need a method that helps us to self-correct our errors. Uh, and that's what the objectivity, that's what objectivity does for us. Okay, so let's move on to the next question submitted by James. So the question is, is narrowing your focus on the good or positive things in a context evasion. And he goes on uh, to uh, give some context for his questions. Um, he says that suppose that you are in a, in a job that is toxic, that has a toxic work environment, uh, and you, you've, it's badly organized, you don't get respect from your colleagues or your bosses, you have a low salary, etc. And on top of all that, you feel unsatisfied because you do not exploit your potential to the fullest. And you consider that uh, thanks to your work, the company, and therefore many people you despise can stay in business, but you decide to stay in that environment because there is uh, one uh, or more people that you like, either romantically or simply you are good friends, or because you can't work, or you can, I'm sorry, work in what you love, says uh, James. So in that context, uh, can that decision to stay in the company be judged as evasion? So if I interpret the suggestion about this example to be that you would just blind yourself to the downsides and the costs uh, and the things you're giving up with this job and not to, to figure those costs into your decision about what to do, that would be evasion, I think, because you're blinding yourself because of emotional reasons to some of the relevant facts. Um, however, one can focus, I wouldn't really use the word focus, I would say maybe attend or concentrate. You can 
So I'd say concentrate on the benefits more so than on the costs. Uh, you can seek to spend more time thinking about the benefits uh, in order to extract the most value you can out of, in this case, this job opportunity and what it does have to offer. Um, that's sort of just the expression, just putting to work the expression, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. You don't have to be blinding yourself to the fact that lemons are sour and maybe you don't even like the taste to spend more time and attention on the things you can extract out of lemons or the, you know, whether it's making money or enjoying the you know, little side gig. Um, now, but that's not an issue of focus versus evasion. I think Ben, you'll say more about why. Um, I also want to add in this particular example, I think you could, you know, if there are friendships you have at a company, but there's nothing else of value about the company, about your time there, why not uh, seek a way to maintain those friendships, but leave your job? There are ways to do that. Um, so in, I think, you know, in fact, if you, in this example, choose to stay at the company, just because of these friendships, you may be uh, blinding yourself to, um, or you may be sort of emotionalistic and using this fear of losing your friendships to guide you. And in fact, uh, thinking of things in the full context, there would be a way to maintain the friendships and pursue a better opportunity. Yeah, so I think part of the reason, a big part of the reason that this question comes up is because person's thinking about the example where they're at work and they're trying not to pay attention to whatever bad things are happening in the office so they can focus on the good. And so they're thinking, well, if I do that, then I'm not focusing uh, on these bad things. And if I'm not focusing, does that mean I'm evading? And th the important thing to understand here is I think that the question presupposes a certain kind of confusion about the meaning of at least the objectivist sense of focus. It's, it's pretty important that it doesn't just mean paying attention to something. It's not a value neutral description of a certain kind of mental state. It's a, it's a mental state that comes with a certain norm attached to it, a certain kind of value judgment attached to it. And to see what I mean by this, here's a, another opportunity to show a passage from Dr. Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, because he gives a very clarifying statement of, of what Ayn Rand specifically means by focus. And so let's put that up on the screen. He says, focus in the conceptual realm, that's as opposed to the perceptual, names a quality of purposeful alertness in a man's mental state focuses the state of a goal-directed mind committed to attaining full awareness of reality. And then he elaborates a little bit. What that means is that uh, the active mind intent on understanding whatever it deals with, the man prepared to summon every conscious resource that will enable him to grasp the object of his, of his concern. Such an individual struggles to grasp all the facts he believes to be relevant as against being content with a splintered grasp, a grasp of some facts while other data dimly sense to be relevant or left shrouded in mental fog, unscrutinized and identified. And so you'll notice here that the way that he puts this is that, uh, that someone who's in full focus is prepared to summon every conscious resource that will enable him to grasp the object of his concern. Uh, he's committed to a attaining full awareness of reality. Um, 
that doesn't mean that he actually is currently summoning every conscious resource that's available to him because not everything available to him might be relevant to what he's trying to do or to what uh, he needs to know in a given moment. Uh, and the fact that it's goal-directed, the state of a goal-directed mind committed to attaining a full awareness of reality, that's the norm that I was referring to a moment ago. And if that's uh, what focus really is, if it has that goal and that norm attached to it, a, a way of thinking about it is that I sum it, focus is managing your mind properly. And that can mean a lot of different things in different contexts with regards to the question of what are you attending to at the moment. So uh, there are lots of cases where you can be, let's say, on vacation and you're relaxing and you're not attending to all kinds of things on purpose because it's a vacation. And so you're not you're not reading about quantum physics. You're not work, doing your work email. Uh, you could still, however, in such a case, be in full focus because you are prepared to access whatever resources you need to need to uh, whenever you need to do it. And so, if if the only resources you need at the moment are your, uh, I don't know, your Frommer's guide to uh, whichever city you're visiting, um, that's the resource you'll look at. Um, if you really need a break. You, you might be prepared to find out whatever information you need if anything comes up, but since you're relaxing on the beach, nothing's coming up and you don't need to do anything right now. Um, so there is a case where you can be in full focus, uh, but you're not really attending to a whole lot of complex cognitive tasks. By the same token, or the other side of the coin here is that there can be cases where somebody is, a, is attending to something intensely but they're not in full focus because there's no good reason for them to be attending to it. So like if you are, if you spot a pretty flower uh, in the middle of a railroad track and you decide to stand there all day, just looking at this wonderful flower and don't notice the train that's bearing down on you, um, that's attention, but it is manifestly not full focus because you're not paying attention to some very important facts in your surroundings. And so, uh, that's a case uh, where you've got to think of you've got to think of focus as being committed to knowing the things you need to know to accomplish your purposes in life, and being committed to considering all of the facts that bear on all of the things that you need to know. Um, if if you'd like to learn more about this, in addition to that passage from Opar, uh, a couple of other things I'd recommend that you take a look at are again Ayn Rand's. Uh, the, the, S, the entry on focus in the Ayn Rand lexicon. You'll see Ayn Rand's own characterization of it there, uh, along with, again, some things from Dr. Peikoff, where he gave the, cor the course that she attended, making basically the same point. Uh, and uh, also just that same chapter, the chapter that that passage in Opar, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, that it's from, is chapter two, uh, of the book, Sense Perception and Volition. And there's a subsection called The Primary Choice is the Choice to Focus or Not. That's where the passage we read previously comes from. And there's a lot more in there about the, the meaning of the concept of focus and why, and which put in a context that explains why we need that. And it's it's not because you should always be paying it, you should always be paying attention to everything all the time. There can be sometimes very good reasons not to pay attention to certain things. And I'll maybe say a little bit more about that later. 
so this this question reminded me of a, a related aspect of objectivism, which I think maybe the questioner also had in mind uh, when asking his question. And it's the fact that uh, objectivism is value oriented. Uh, and to oversimplify what Rand says, she tells us to uh, pursue the good and not merely to avoid the bad. So to be focused on the good and everything follows from that. Can you say a little bit more about this and how this doesn't mean that we ignore the bad, but we are oriented towards the good? Right. So uh, this relates to her idea that it's motivation by love for values as opposed to motivation by fear uh, that that represents a healthy psychological outlook. And that's related to her kind of deeper metaphysical position that we live in a benevolent universe where value achievement is possible, not a malevolent universe where everything's out to get us in effect. And that has implications for what is the proper way, I think, to manage your mind. If focus is uh, proper mind management, then that has implications for, well, what's the, what is the, what are the right things to pay attention to at, at different times in your life? And I, I mean, I think it's definitely true that if you pay too much attention to evil or too much attention to the, you know, bad people that you're working with, uh, you, you end up treating evil as though it's powerful, although as though it's important, as though you live in a malevolent universe. And so it's it it can be important to uh, of, to ignore certain kind of people who are just giving you a bad time. Um, this is my number one piece of recommendation for anybody who uses uh, Twitter. If you if you have trolls that bother you incessantly, say because you um, say controversial things, you should just ignore them. Uh, there it's not there's not much point in getting into an argument with them. Um, now that doesn't mean though that you should ignore the bad in your life entirely because obviously it has uh, effects on you it's but the issue is that you shouldn't um you shouldn't prioritize your attention to them you shouldn't like wake up in the morning like oh my god what did the trolls say about me today or what did the what did the people at the water cooler in this in this job this person is working on what did they say today what how are they bad mouthing me no you should focus on what's good what's important in your life what you're trying to produce but of course, sometimes the bad people can have effects on your very, your very effort to produce the kinds of things that you need to produce. And in that case, you need to obviously pay attention to it to the extent that it's necessary to get them out of your life and to be able to move on. And you know, so it, it might be, it, it depends a lot on whether the people in that work environment are affecting your ability to do your job. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think, the approach you could take in this toxic work environment example is think about the positive vision you have for your life, uh, which is crucial, and ask, are you able to achieve that? And that you do need to be um, in focus when you're thinking about. Okay, so let's move on to uh, our next question. Uh, this question comes from Sam. And Sam asks, what are the strongest objections to objectivism? And the context is by strongest, I mean the loudest, i.e. the most frequently raised, most persuasive or most plausible rather than correct. 
This is a great question. I love this question. Uh, gives us a opportunity to uh, steel man objectivism or, or red team it or whatever uh, people are saying these days. And um, I especially like it because the person asking the question realizes there's a difference between uh, a persuasive and a plausible objection and uh, one that uh, may be and one that's actually that one that actually succeeds. There can be object, objections that are plausible, that appeal to facts that are real, uh, but which still can be answered. And so I want to pick one myself and answer it. And then Dan's going to do the same thing uh, with a different objection. Um, and I think these are the best kinds of criticisms to look at because there's a lot of bad criticisms out there of objectivism there's a bunch of them that that just misrepresent what the philosophy actually stands for and then so they're in effect straw manning uh, as opposed to steel manning objectivism so there are people who say Ayn Rand was a materialist uh, she didn't believe in any kind of psychological spiritual dimension of life uh, they say that her selfishness means trampling over other people, that she had contempt for the poor and the, and the stupid, that she was an anarchist. These are all just misrepresentations of her philosophy. So I'm not going to bother looking at any of those, even though they're very common. Um, what's more interesting are the common objections uh, that you get from people who've studied Ayn Rand's views well enough to know that she doesn't have any of these kind of straw man positions. Uh, but they don't really understand her the positions that she actually has, and they they will argue that her arguments for these positions don't succeed. Uh, this is especially important, I think, to do when you're looking at the arguments that she gives for her core ethical doctrines, where she gives a lot of arguments, and they are really core uh, to her whole idea uh, of what the idea of rational egoism amounts to, for instance. And so the objection that I had in mind is one that comes up on the topic of ethics. Uh, when people read passages like the following uh, in Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged, so here's a passage where Galt is presenting part of the argument for Ayn Rand's ethics, and it, it goes like this. He says, uh, he says, man's life is the standard of morality, but your life is its purpose. If existence on earth is your goal, you must choose your actions and values by the standard of that which is proper to man for the purpose of preserving, fulfilling, and enjoying the irreplaceable value, which is your life. A very common objection to the kind of argument that she's making here is to look at the first part of that sentence and to look at all the things that she says in defense of it. Um, and to then look at the second part and argue that there's a certain disconnect, that the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. Because the first part speaks about life being the standard of value. And here, uh, a lot of the evidence that she gives in support of why life is the standard of value is uh, facts about living organisms, facts about how they face a constant uh, alternative between existence and non-existence. And there's a, what makes them distinct from uh, the inanimate realm is the fact that there's a definite course of action that they need to pursue if they want to maintain their existence. And so that's a big part of her argument for the idea that life is the standard. But then people will very frequently, very commonly argue, wait, but that's just 
at, at best, that's an argument for why something like brute physical survival is a standard of value or the standard of value. But why is she then going on, going ahead and adding fulfilling and enjoying to the purpose? Why is she saying the purpose of preserving, fulfilling, and enjoying the irreplaceable value, which is your life? They'll say, well, she's just using kind of emotional rhetoric here to sneak some extra assumptions in that weren't in the premises of the argument when she was talking about the existence or non-existence of plants and animals. There was nothing like that in there. So uh, isn't this some uh, illicit inference that she's drawing from the data that she presents? And so that's that's an argument. That's an objection that people will make when they've, they've actually read Ayn Rand's essays. They know the positions that she argues for. Uh, uh, but they don't think the argument works. And if this, if they're right about this, if they're right that this uh, argument doesn't work, it is a killer objection. It, the whole objectivist ethics ends up collapsing because all of the objectivist virtues, rationality, independence, integrity, justice, productivity, pride, they all relate to, they relate more to the fulfilling and enjoying uh, the irreplaceable value of your life, not just the preserving is the way they would make the charge. And at that point, if that's true, then the arguments that Ayn Rand offers in defense of her ethics uh, end up defending nothing better than something like a Machiavellian view of existence where, where your life at most dictates that you should kill or be killed. And so that kind of stereotype view about Ayn Rand's ethics, that it's just about exploiting other people, trampling over them to get what you want. Um, th this objection is basically saying, well, maybe that's not what Ayn Rand intends, but her argument doesn't justify anything better than that. And so if you wanna really defend the heart and soul of the objectivist ethics against, you know, and you wanna defend its virtues, then you do need to, understand what's wrong with this objection and what's wrong um, with the style of thinking that leads to this objection. And I think there are basically three major problems with this objection. And I'll go in kind of the increasing order of fundamentality. So I'll get to the deeper problems at the end here. The first big problem with this objection is that it ignores that fulfillment, enjoyment, happiness are not just like epiphenomena that are, are along for the ride with human life. They, they are very much essential parts of what human life is. If a human being is a being of integrated body and mind, then the, the well-being of the mind the, the well and, and the mind here includes not just your thinking, but your feeling as well, is, is very much a crucial part, not just a means to the end, but a part of the end of life. The mind is not simply, simply a tool of survival, though of course it is, and it's, it's crucial that is, it is our basic means of survival, but it's not just uh, a means of survival. It's it's part of who you are as a human being. And uh, this is, I think, a big part of what Ayn Rand means when she talks about life being an end in itself. What that means is that every major activity in life is a means to the end of 
more of itself. That's a big part of what it means for uh, life to be a self-sustaining, self-generating process. Um, so uh, the way I often like to um, summarize this point is, and this is going to relate to the next major point, but Ayn Rand didn't write Atlas Shrugged for the sake of her cells. Let that sink in for a moment. She didn't say, I really want to keep my body alive, and therefore I'm going to write a book that's going to allow me to make money, and therefore the money is going to allow my cells to function. If you think that's what motivated her or what motivates any kind of artist to do what they're doing, you've got a really crazy view of human psychology and of what human life actually is. Uh, and that relates to the second major error, I think, in this objection, which is that it treats the concept of life as what Ayn Rand would call a floating abstraction. Uh, this is a, it's a thinking error that's characteristic of what she called uh, rationalism, which is the kind of characteristic method that a lot of younger uh, intellectuals adopt where they hear a concept from a philosopher, they didn't form the concept or fully grasp the concept on their own, they see a philosopher using it, they haven't thought that much about all the observations that go into the concept. And so therefore for them, it's, it's floating, it kind of floats over reality without being directly connected to reality. And you have to have a kind of floating concept of life to think that life uh, and fulfillment and enjoyment are all separate things, that life is something like just the functioning of your cells, uh, but not anything else. And you can give plenty of examples to, to make this clear. One that I like to give is if you have a plant that has uh, basically died because it, it hasn't gotten enough sun or enough water, there can still be little individual cells left in the body of that plant that are photosynthesizing, scattered here and there in the, in the, the dead husk of the plant. Um, but as a plant, or as, as we would say, a plant qua plant, it, it's dead. So its cells are alive, but the plant is, is dead. And the same thing goes for human beings. Human beings, human life is a lot more than just uh, the functioning of some cells. Uh, and the best example to give here is think about a brain dead human being who's, who it's, its organs are functioning except for its brain. It's like hooked up to a heart lung machine or an ECMO machine. So there's blood circulating through its body, uh, but it's a vegetable. And that's why we have the concept of brain death because it's not living as a human. And that's not just some kind of uh, emotional rhetorical language. That's like a medical category that this is not a human being anymore. Uh, so that's an example of where your consciousness is completely uh, absent from your life. But obviously there are degrees of that. And somebody who has still has a working brain, but who uh, let's say ha is characteristically evasive uh, characteristically trying to avoid reality, as in the example that we were discussing previously, that's somebody who is living less of a human life. Uh, life is something that you know does come in degrees. They and and that makes uh, that means that they are they're moving further away uh, from life, moving further away from actually being in existence. But what is existence? Well, that relates to the last major point that I think this uh, error 
uh, involves, and this is a more metaphysical point than an epistemological point, and that's that the the error, uh, the view that life is one thing, survival is one thing, and and flourishing or fulfillment is another, um, makes the mistake of separating the, the existence of a human being from its identity. And the connection between existence and identity is, is a, something that's crucially important in the objectivist metaphysics. If you read Galt's speech, uh, this is something that comes up very early in the speech. And, and most everything he says about metaphysics, he says in order to build the foundation for his ethics, to be is to be something in particular. There's no existing, but not as anything particular. And there's no existing as a human being without existing in a particular way. Human life is a distinctive way of living. It's not simply having your cells function. And it's not even living like a plant or an animal uh, where there's, there's some kind of organic unity to the cells, but they're not all being organized and governed by the central authority, which is your reason. So uh, it, we, we, another fact about human life that makes it distinctive is that human beings have volition. And so they can make choices and they can make errors and they can rebel against their own nature. But because of that, when they do it, they are by that fact living uh, less of a human life. They are not using their mind in full focus with the goal uh, of knowing reality in order to live in it. And that it's not, the point is not simply that that's not flourishing, that's not fulfilling, it's not really living. And it, it, it moves them further and further in the direction of existing as anything at all. So uh, one resource I would definitely recommend if you want to learn more about this issue, because I think at the core of the issue is a, is a like I mentioned before, a rationalistic way of thinking about the concept of life, treating it as a floating abstraction, uh, is uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff's course, Understanding Objectivism, which is dedicated, generally speaking, to combating rationalism in your thinking. And as it turns out, there's a whole special lecture, lecture two, on just this very topic, on life as the standard of value and how people get into problems like the one that, we, that I was just talking about, um, because of a rationalistic approach to the concept of life. And this is a very common uh, misunderstanding of Ayn Rand's philosophy. It leads a lot of people to become skeptical of it after they've, uh, after they've read some of it. And uh, so that's, I chose that as my, uh, that's my best objection to objectivism because it's so common and powerful to people who have this rationalistic way of thinking, but they don't have to have that method. And uh, I encourage them to, to look into how to fix it. So Dan, you've got a, did you want to add anything to this or did you want yeah, to- Yeah, well, I second the recommendation for that lecture. It's, it's, it's a great lecture. The example of a brain dead person is very clear cut. I mean, that person is neither surviving as a person nor flourishing, but what would you say about something that's not as clear cut? Like, let's suppose that cutting your calories radically lengthened your lifespan, we knew, by three years, but you know, you were, you know, spend a third of your life a little bit, uh, you know, miserable, but, you know, you could tolerate it. I mean, there does seem maybe like survival and flourishing come apart. Would you think so? I, I don't think so, because I think what, what seems tricky about that case is 
the fact that I actually don't think there is an answer to the question of just from the way you describe it, uh, whether it's uh, better living or worse living in any sense, because it totally depends on the individual and their context uh, and their particular hierarchy of values. I think there can be some people who have good reason to want to lengthen their life at the expense of certain, certain kinds of pleasures. I wouldn't say of quality of life, I'd say of certain kinds of pleasures. So that person is, let's say, uh, not experiencing the pleasure of certain food, but presumably part of the reason they want to do it is they want to live a number of years to enjoy other things. Uh, time with friends, family, whatever job they're working on. Um, now, I mean, the one case that I would uh, imagine is, is, I guess, like if they if they lengthen their life at the expense of this, the pleasure of this food, but to no purpose at all, uh, and they end up just being coma, uh, comatose brain dead patients for the last three, three years of their life, um, that's different. But um, then I think that's by the, for the same reason as I gave before. Um, neither flourishing nor living, it's, it's, it's missing the same thing in each case. Thanks, that's helpful. Uh, so I was thinking about what I thought the strongest objections to objectivism are. A lot of them that occurred to me were the sorts of straw man objections that Ben mentioned. Um, but I, I wanted to present an objection that does not depend on any misunderstanding of objectivism. Um, and it's an objection that I think is strong in that a lot of smart people uh, believe this, um, especially smart people believe this perhaps. And if it's true, I think all of objectivism uh, is wrong. There's almost none of objectivism that you could save if this is true. And the objection is skepticism about free will. Um, so objectivism holds it as an axiom as a fundamental self-evident starting point that we do have the capacity to make choices, a genuine capacity to control our minds and select among alternatives. Um, however, a lot of kind of scientifically minded people today are, um, perhaps they don't think science shows determinism that we don't make choices, uh, but they may think, look, science is making a lot of progress there's a lot about how the brain or consciousness works that we still don't understand. And surely there's at least some initial reasons to think the objection would go that consciousness well, arises from brain activity. We're currently studying how the brain works. We're learning about the different chemical components and those particles you could say that make it up. And each of those particles, you know, we could discover the different laws uh, whether physical or, or, or chemical, that explain the different goings-on and motions of those particles. And so if consciousness results from all of this brain activity, and the brain activity is a result, the brain activity just consists in these motions that we will someday hopefully explain, of particles, neurotransmitters, things like that, uh, then where is there any room for us to control our minds in a way that we could do something different from what actually happens? We would sort of be just helpless victims of what is going on in our brains. Um, and kind of continuing the objection, if, if we don't have a genuine capacity to make choices among alternatives, if things are going to happen in our brains the way they're going to happen, uh, if we just have to do what we in fact do, um, 
you know, on that view, nobody, you know, whether it's Howard Rourke or Peter Keating or Albert Tui or you or me, nobody could do anything different from what you in fact do. And this is, I think in a lot of people's minds, a kind of scientifically minded empirical view, or at least it's, I think what kind of well-meaning motivation for this might be that we should be open to the best of what science says. And this is still, we're still in the early stages of science investigating the brain and we should be open to what it will tell us. So let me just emphasize for a bit how big of a threat this free will skepticism uh, would be to objectivism. So if, if it's even, if we consider the possibility, we consider it as a possibility that there is no free will, that we're not in control of our mind. Um, on that view, we are something, we are essentially like automata, like just high powered computer programs that happen to be in bodies and are controlling our bodies. On that view, we're not in control of our minds. We're not in control of our lives, therefore. And if that's right, then the objectivist epistemology is out because we can't really have knowledge. We're not in control of our minds. So how do we know if we have used our minds to get to the truth or not? Uh, if you believe something is true, it's because you had to believe it's true. And there's no real ability to distinguish truth from falsehood. Uh, if, if we took this possibility of determinism seriously, then you don't really have this idea of the passionate valuer that is, I think, distinctive to objectivism. Um, what is there to be a passionate valuer about? If you take someone, uh, a hero like Howard Rourke, could you be in love with a person like that? Well, no, and Rourke, just like all of us, is the victim of what happens to be going in his brain. You might, you might like him, you might feel you benefit from him, uh, let's say, but could you really love a person for their achievements? Well, they're not really achievements. Uh, and the same goes for a bad person or an evil person like Hitler. Um, the kind of mindset you ought to have towards an evil person if determinism were true is, well, this person is just like a force of nature, like a hurricane. Yes, it may kill a lot of people and you may dislike it and wish it didn't exist, but you couldn't really say, you know, this person did something wrong or evil. Um, it's just a force of nature that happens to be destructive. Um, and I think there's plenty more in objectivism that would fall if we really accepted uh, this free will skepticism. Just maybe one more example. Um, objectivism takes it as evil to initiate force. Um, that is a basic evil in objectivism. Well, why is it evil? Well, it's evil because we're all in, in control or all can be in control of our own minds and you're disrupting someone's ability to act on their best judgments when you use force against them. But if we're all just like automata, what's evil about force? It's just another thing you can kind of add into the world to manipulate the results that happen to take place. Um, and I think if they take that seriously, then it's, it's a quick step to having no real argument for freedom being better than dictatorship. If we're just automata, we're the sorts of beings that would be right at home in a dictatorship and being controlled. So that's all just to emphasize this is, you know, I'm thinking of strong threats to objectivism in the sense that something that would really undermine the whole philosophy and this is definitely up there. So let me say a little bit about um, 
how I'd reply to this. I think the most fundamental point has to be that your observation that you have an ability to control your mind, and this is the idea of focus that we said a little bit about in response to the earlier question, that is self-evident. All you really can do in the end is observe your mind and see. What I think objectivism, one thing I think that objectivism does here that's very helpful to the skeptic that we're talking about is it points them in the right direction with their mind of where to look. Because it's, although I say it's self-evident that we have free will, um, it's not obvious because you might be looking inside your mind at the wrong things you're doing, which is what people typically do. So by elaborating on what it is to control your mind, what it is to raise or lower your level of focus and giving examples of that and really showing its importance, I think objectivism has a lot to offer uh, the skeptic here, uh, just in helping them to look for their own evidence, which is, which is a self-evidence. Um, I think the initial objection is right that we don't yet know much about the science of the brain, that the science is still in its early stages and if the science is being done well, we should accept what it says. Um, and I, I'm hopeful myself science will someday discover a lot about the mechanisms by which the brain works. But what we will be looking for when we do that, when scientists do that is, what are the mechanisms that explain our capacity to control our minds? Um, I think there's more that could be said, but if you're, if the free will skeptic is expecting a lot more of a response, and if the idea they have is, well, they're going to listen to this response, going to deliberate about it, they're going to evaluate it, consider the evidence, and then make a decision about whether they accept this response, well, you could point out that the free will skeptic has already accepted free will because they're listening to the evidence and deciding whether to accept it. And uh, I did want to highly recommend um, a two lecture course by Harry Binswanger titled Free Will that I think does a really good job concretizing and giving examples of what it means to raise and lower your level of focus and awareness. Um, so it's a kind of deep dive into this topic uh, if you would still like more. It's bit.ly slash HB free will if anyone is listening to the audio. So uh, I'll just comment on that, Dan, that there's a there's a connection we can make between the first question we talked about, the one about the, uh, I, I guess it was the second question, second question we talked about, the one about the meaning of the concept focus, and this point you've now just made uh, about uh, the way in which even the determinist is implicitly accepting free will when they are considering the evidence for or against certain propositions. And that's because it, if, if focus isn't just any particular thing you happen to be paying attention to, but it's a commitment to knowing what's true, uh, then when they recognize that they are doing that, when they are saying, no, I'm, I'm not only going to believe something just because somebody tells me, I'm only going to accept an argument for this theory if it fits with the facts. Uh, then they are actually in full focus. But uh, more than that, if if you accept that, um, I mean, what someone could say is, well, okay, yes, I, I am in full focus, but it's something determined me to be in full focus. And that's why I'm paying attention to the arguments. Well, but then 
Uh, that's not really what focus is from objectivism's perspective. Objectivism holds focus to be a commitment to knowing what's true come what may. And that can't be something that's just determined by accidental factors. It can't be, uh, well, the only reason I'm paying attention to logic today is to, as opposed to being a, a prejudiced uh, bigot is because some, uh, some synapse happened to be triggered by something I ate for breakfast. That's not a commitment to reality. That is an accidental factor. And you would be very hard pressed to explain how anyone could ever really know anything at all and know that the arguments that they accept are actually rationally justified if the final step in the justification process is simply, well, something I ate for breakfast triggered a synapse. The ultimate uh, justification has to be I looked at reality and I know that I did that because I made it true. I made it true that I was looking at reality because I was in direct control of my mind. And that's what the choice to focus actually is. And I should also mention that the, the way that I just framed the response to that argument by saying, you can't just say that um, you were determined to go into focus uh, because that's an accident and not commitment. That's implicitly an answer to all of the different so-called compatibilist theories that try somehow to reconcile some sense of freedom with determinism. They all try to say, well, all it, you know, we, we don't have to say that we're unfree or not morally responsible or not responsible for the content of our minds if determinism is true. All we have to do is say to be to do something freely means to do it because of a certain kind of cause. And the way that the compatibilists usually define that kind of cause is, I mean, in my view, pretty superficial and not something that gets to the heart of what it means to be free. It's never something like uh, going into focus. It's, it's usually something like, well, you're doing what you want to do, but there's no commentary on, well, what caused you to want it. And we could do a whole other episode, I think, just on compatibilism, but I'll, I'll leave it at that, with, uh, that uh, teaser as to uh, how to think more about that question. Um, and I have a quick follow-up um, about something you, Ben, said earlier at the beginning of the answer to this question. You listed a number of objections that are very common in objectivism. And uh, there's one that I think it's worth addressing uh, because it relates a little bit to what you were saying earlier in your answer, is the, the objection that says that Rand is a materialist, but she's not. And she often refers to spiritual values, and she even talks about man's soul uh, a lot, but she does so in a secular way. So can you guys elaborate a little bit on her view of spiritual values? I can say a little bit about this. Um... So just as the view is in, a, in essence that just as there are needs of your body, like food, there are also needs of consciousness. And those needs of consciousness are what we could talk of as spiritual values. And just to pick one very important spiritual value or need of consciousness, uh, self-esteem, which is one of Rand's three cardinal values, uh, which you could think of as a kind of, I can do this, I'm capable attitude. It's a conviction that of your ability and worthiness to live. Um, and to really go after your values over the long term and live a, a happy life, you, you need this conviction that I'm capable. You need that 
all the time, and especially if you're going to sustain the effort it takes to pursue a life uh, in the face of difficulties and challenges. And let me add to that something that connects to the topic we were just discussing, because and there's a one of the questions you can ask about this objection, uh, and usually I think the people making it are disingenuous, but the the question to ask is, what do you mean by materialism when you say that Ayn Rand was a materialist? And that's a very ambiguous term. It means a lot of different things. Like it means something like, if you think it means uh, you should only pursue material values, you shouldn't pursue friendships. She clearly doesn't believe in that for the reason that Dan just explained. Uh, but sometimes they might mean by materialism, the idea there is nothing but matter in the universe, that there are no minds. Now, clearly she doesn't think that either. We've just been talking about how a uh, human being is, a, is an integration of mind and body. And she also is a critic of what they call philosophical materialism, the idea that the mind is nothing but the brain or nothing but some uh, fact that's identical with uh, physical matter. And here again, there are different things that are meant by that. I mean, if you ask her, can there be a mind without a brain? Can there be a consciousness without a body that is attached to it? There she'll say, no, no, there's no immortal soul. Consciousness is a faculty of a living organism. And if the living organism dies, the consciousness goes with it. So if you want to say that's materialism, okay, she'll accept that. But it's rarely what is ever meant by materialism. She uh, thinks that even though the mind is dependent on the body, it's not identical with the particular neurophysiological functioning of the brain. It's it's uh, something distinct. And you can see that from the conversation we were just having about free will, that uh, that she thinks that free will is the is is the mind's ability to, in effect, be the authority over the body, to be able to self-direct itself in the world using the body as as its as a tool and so it is definitely if, if by materialism you mean anything that implies determinism she certainly doesn't accept that either okay so that is all the time that we have for today however if um you would like to keep this conversation going right after we're done with this podcast we'll be in uh, in clubhouse in the ayn rand club so you can join us there and you can ask uh, your own questions. And uh, for next week's uh, episode, we have a preview of an Ayn Rand University course. It's a preview on Keith Lockett's course, Foundations of Physical Science. And Mike Massa will be interviewing Keith Lockett about this new course, course that is very exciting. Um, and as usual, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube and click the bell to get notifications for when we uh, upload new content. And if you're watching the recording, please like, comment, and share. And if you have questions or comments about today's episode, or you want to give us a suggestion for future episodes, you can send an email to newideal at ironran.org. And, and we'll read all of the emails that you send, and we often reply to many of them. So thank you, Ben. Thank you, Dan, for this Q&A episode. And see you next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, 
a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.